0: Hey, thanks for uh, letting me come and share a little bit about um, a topic that is uh, culturally sensitive and uh, sensitive in the church. Uh, we're living in a very interesting moment where um, where uh, the church is, uh, the, the Bible-believing, what we might call evangelical or maybe orthodox, lowercase o, orthodox church, has, has for centuries, millennia, agreed on, on this issue. I mean, when we were killing each other with swords over baptism, we agreed on this issue. Uh, there's a uniform witness uh, on the basic outline of sexual ethics that lasted in, in the Bible-believing church up until maybe like 1995. Um, And today, uh, we're just not all on the same page about uh, sexual ethics within Christianity. Um, And so what I hope to do today is to to really humbly share with you a piece of my story, but to, to say that I know that not everyone who experiences homosexual desire or participates in homosexual activity has the same story, and and so I want to honor that um, because, because we're not we don't all walk the same road. Um, I also want to say that you guys freak me out. <laughs> I do conferences with like a whole bunch of like middle aged Midwesterners, and like the things that I need to address with them. It's, like, way easier to try to be, like, the youngest, coolest guy in the room. <laughs> but I can't here. Like, it's 9 o'clock. I want to go to bed. My 8-month-old my is going to be awake in 5 hours. But that's okay. <laughs> so you, you guys just hold on. Let's do this together. Right? Um, let me pray. Father, uh, thanks for our time tonight. Um, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ, amen. Um, I grew up in the Christian tradition, in the Christian church. I was the annoying kid in Sunday school that knew more than the teacher and was proud of it. I was a Bible thumper who told my friends in biology in ninth grade that they were going to hell because they copied each other's homework. I was insufferable. Um, But I can remember very clearly at 14 years old, 15 years old, laying in my bed in the middle of the night, staring at the ceiling fan as it went, good dunk, good dunk, good dunk, above me thinking, holy crap, I'm gay. Um, If you grow up in like conservative evangelical Christianity and your whole identity is about being the most Christian kid in your high school, I mean like I had Christian bumper stickers attached to my gym bag. It was really bad. (laughs) Um, that presented a problem for me in, in, in my thought. And the problem was this. My worth is based on how good I am and this is bad and so I need to fix this. Um... Within a year, I was having a conversation with my parents on the good furniture in the living room um, about the homosexual pornography that they'd found on our family computer. It was like 1999, and I didn't know about clearing browser history or anything like that. Um, And so... We began a journey as a family. I went into uh, counseling, and the counselors really worked on my self-esteem. I, I didn't grow up in a gay-bashing church. I didn't grow up in a, like, a, like I was the Bible-thumper, not the people around me. You have to understand that. And, and, and so nobody was putting shame on me but 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 I knew that like there was something um, incongruous between what I felt and what I knew to be right so I went to counseling and the counselors tried to like make me feel better about myself um, and I did I felt better about myself but I still thought I had this fundamental problem I couldn't change. then I went to a conservative Christian college. Where my identity built on being the good Christian kid was like challenged hardcore because all of these kids were good Christian kids, but they played acoustic guitar and threw frisbees, and I was like, I can't keep up. Um, so I sw- so I swung from being very legalistic, very Pharisaic, to being very licentious. I'm gonna be like the cool Christian kid, and I'm gonna smoke and drink, and that's uh, that. And because Christians could do that, man. Um, but the the thing was, I was still trying to find my identity in my performance and there was this incongruity between what I was doing in the background um, I was at this point hooking up with people and and still using pornography and and that sort of thing and so um, halfway through college I started to talk about what was going on in my heart and, and let this false image of myself fall down um, and then I got to like the intellectual battle um, I wanted to be gay, and I wanted it to be okay, and I didn't want to feel bad about it, so I had to do one of two things. I either had to dismiss Christianity, or I had to reconcile Christianity and homosexual behavior. So, I studied every passage, every book, every author. I read Gary Comstock and the Gay Liberation Theologians of the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, I, I did everything I could to reconcile the two, But uh, and we can talk about this at, at some other point, but the plain reading of the text of Scripture in context is that Homosexual behavior is forbidden. So, I couldn't reconcile them, so I had to do away with Christianity. That's like very short sentences that describe a very long period of time, but hang with me. So I had to do away with Christianity. I had to do away with the Bible. The center of Christianity is Jesus, Jesus claims to be God. If you read the Gospels, it's obvious that Jesus receives the Bible, uh, the the Old Testament writings and law and and prophecies as divine in origin. And so um, if I could do away with Christ, I could do away with Christianity. And Christ's big claim is uh, his divinity, and that's proven by his resurrection. So uh, I was in the computer lab chatting on AOL Instant Messenger, which very clearly dates when I went to college. Um, and tried to disassemble the resurrection with a friend of mine over the internet. There's this story in the Bible about Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord, and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the angel touches his hip, and Jacob, from that day on, walks with a limp. When I couldn't get past the resurrection, when I couldn't get past Jesus, I walked away with a limp. I walked away accepting the Bible's teaching, but honestly feeling like a... Just terrible, because I, I thought that what I needed to do was get fixed, to be, be okay, and I wasn't still. Um, a couple years later, post-college, I'm in probably the darkest, lowest point in my life. There's, um, a, a, And I sit down with a guy named Tim, who confronts me with a truth that makes me very uncomfortable, but is very liberating at the same time. I'm going through my litany. Why do I struggle with this? Why is it this way? Why can't I be okay? Why can't I feel okay? Why can't this be right? And Tim had been through this journey as well. Uh, he's a, a, you know 20 years older than I, and um, he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, Alan, you struggle this way because you want to. I did not like wake up one morning and think, hmm, today, gay. I'll do that. Like... I didn't choose this temptation. I didn't choose this pattern. I don't remember choosing it. And yet, Tim was making a larger point. He went on to say, Alan, you get something out of this. You get love, you get affirmation, you get respect. I don't know what you're looking for, but you get something out of this. And until you until you stop worshiping other gods, and until your the desires of your heart are met in Christ, meaning until you start repenting, not just of of stuff you're doing wrong, but of of worship that is wrongly oriented. You're not going to be okay. Not that I wasn't saved or whatever, but... But that moment was incredibly liberating because I thought I needed to fix my orientation. I thought I had a psychological problem. And the truth is I had a sin problem and we all have a sin problem. And the, sin, the answer for sin is grace and repentance. You see, I wanted to be fixed so I didn't need God so I could live that identity as the good Christian. But the truth was I needed daily grace and repentance. I needed to, uh, as Luther says, relearn the gospel every day. I stopped worrying about orientation change. I stopped worrying about getting fixed. And, I, and I, I started to rest. There's a lot more to the story. But suffice it to say that that began a season of my life of incredible liberation. Um, sharing more about what was going on in my heart and life. Finding less of my worth and value in my performance. Trusting God more. Realizing that he wasn't disappointed that he had loved me or saved me. Um, This season of my life also led me into seminary. This season of my life also led me uh, to work for a ministry in the Pittsburgh area called Harvest USA. Um, And it also led me to my wife, Leanne. Um, I don't think that marriage is the end or the answer or the solution especially not the solution uh, to same-sex attraction or homosexuality and I think a lot of times we the church hold up marriage as like the be-all end-all and I, I don't think that that's wise I have brothers who I deeply love in the Lord who live out their their um, live, out, live faithfully in chastity uh, but for me I wanted to be married and so I got married and And all of this is because God convinced me that the gospel was for me every day. Um, I tell you that story because I'm trying to buy a little bit of credibility. We live in a time where narrative is powerful. Uh, narrative gives you the right to speak on things. Now, here's the thing: Derek could get up here and teach you biblically about sexuality, about homosexuality, and if he is faithfully teaching you what God's Word says, it is no more true because Derek has struggled with heterosexual lust, and I've struggled with homosexual lust. It's it's no more true if I say it or if Derek says it. But I want you to know when I when I explain what the Bible says about some of this stuff. Um, it's, it's not from a place of outside saying you. It's from a place of inside saying me too. Um, and if that, if that buys your ear for another 15, 20 minutes, thank you. And if it doesn't, I don't care. I'm leaving after tonight. <laughs> I want to do three or four things briefly. I want to answer just a couple of the most frequently asked questions when I speak to groups like this. Um, and then, hopefully, in our q and a time, we can get to some some good stuff first. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? On your handout, you'll see uh, that the first thing we need to do to answer the question, what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality, is make sure we're grounded in a good biblical sexual ethic. The Bible teaches that sex is good. Uh, After the creation of man and woman in the biblical narrative of creation, God blesses them in the form of command. It's a very interesting linguistic construction. Um, God blessed them saying, and then His blessing on them is in the imperative form, it's And the very first thing God says to newly created man is be fruitful and multiply. It's like God created man and then hit play, and Marvin Gaye came on. Sex is good. It's part of creation. It is not a dirty, bad thing. It is for within the covenant of marriage. In the second version of the creation account in Genesis, um, after creating man, God creates the woman, and the man turns to the woman and says, Alas, the one that I fit with, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And there's this beautiful verse in Genesis uh, 2.25. It says, um, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Sex is supposed to be the expression of unashamedness and vulnerability that happens within the safety and beauty and power of covenant relationship between husband and wife. And so thirdly, in a biblical sexual, sexual ethic, sex is other-centered. I'm sure Derek has talked about things like this, but I just want to briefly say that sex in marriage is not sanctified pornography. Uh, too often we, leave Christians with the, uh, be- we lead Christians to believe that if you just stay pure enough until marriage, then your married sex life will be great and you will get everything you ever wanted but didn't give yourself because you were striving for your purity. Here's the truth. We are incredibly selfish beings. And that includes in our sexual relationship. Uh, you can still be masturbating while you are having sex with your spouse. Because we are so selfish that our goal, oftentimes in sex, is to please ourselves. But as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7, it's the third passage that's cited. Sex is supposed to be other-centered. In the covenant of marriage, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the one that is not you. You are one with one who is unlike you. And that's the beauty of it. And so there's, I mean, this is like the least romantic way to say this, but Paul says, give your partner their conjugal rights because your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to them. In marriage, in sexual intimacy, the purpose of your body is for the pleasing of your spouse, not for your own pleasing. And so this is our groundwork foundational biblical sexual ethic. It is good, it has a purpose, it has a place, and it is other-centered. And so, when we turn to the issue of homosexuality, the Bible has some prohibitive texts. They're listed on your paper. In fact, I didn't put like the fullness of those because I was like a little like scared to because these are like the the hard texts. Like when you grow grow up gay in the church, like the verse you know is Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you go around thinking, crap, I'm an abomination. And then you realize the gospel says that you're a son of God and it's way better than that. But anyway, sorry. I'm here. You're here. Cool. The Bible is explicitly prohibitive of homosexual activity. Robert Gagnon, in his book, um, The Bible and Homosexuality, which is kind of the definitive Bible explaining. Textbook on this issue, written by a guy who is not an evangelical Christian, um, does not come from an evangelical background, but dissects every instance in the Old, New Testament and the Apocrypha about this issue of homosexuality, points out that the the Bible's prohibition is against homosexual activity in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, but also in the New. In Romans, uh, homosexuality, in Romans 1, it's equated with worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 6, it is listed with a lot of other things, including drunkenness and thieving and greed um, and general sexual immorality and idolatry as characteristics of people who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Uh, in 1 Timothy, it is listed in that same context as well. We can talk about this more if you'd like, but uh, the plain reading of the text of Scripture is that homosexual behavior is prohibited. Um It is not the only thing that is prohibited by the Bible, uh, but it is. And so um, we have to move on to some practical applicatory questions. Uh, For example, um, if homosexuality is not, quote, a choice... How can it be wrong? Or uh, what if people are born that way? Uh, This is the second question I, I probably get most frequently. It has behind it a worldview that says, if something comes naturally to you, it must not be wrong. Right? That's the worldview behind the question. But when we expose the worldview, we see a problem with it, right? Don't you have things that come naturally to you that you know are wrong? Did anyone have to teach you to lie to your parents? Did anyone have to teach you to be lazy or to be greedy? Uh, did anyone have to teach you to be gluttonous? I know I'm using like these like old school words for these things, but like nobody had to teach you to want things you're not supposed to want. And so as a fundamental principle, that something comes naturally to us doesn't mean it's okay. Um, Jesus talks about this in Matthew's Gospel. He says, uh, it's what comes out of the mouth that proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. In other words, Jesus says, of course you're born that way. Everybody is. We've taken homosexuality or queerness or gender fluidity and we've put them in this separate category, but the Bible doesn't seem to treat them in a separate category. It treats them in the same category that all of us naturally want things that God says we're not supposed to want. And so on the one hand, some of us Christians need to get over the gag reflex we have over homosexuality. It doesn't really help, um, it doesn't help our reputation in the world around us, but it doesn't help people in the pews who are struggling. Uh, Everybody is born with natural desires uh, that are opposed to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Um, I didn't put the text on there, but Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3. The Spirit of God, in essence, Paul says, the Spirit of God fights against the desires of your heart for control of your heart. Can can you identify with that? Even even if you can't identify with homosexuality or same-sex attraction, we're all like Paul in Romans 7. I don't do the thing I want to do, and I do the thing I don't want to do. And we look up to the sky and we say, God, why am I like this? And whatever your issue is, we're all in the same boat. And apart from Christ, it's sinking. Um, Third. Okay, so you say the Bible prohibits homosexual behavior, activity, homosexual intercourse, What about orientation and identity? Isn't it the case that today we now know that there are some people who engage in homosexual acts that are against their natural orientation, but other people are just naturally oriented this way? It is their identity. Um, The Bible doesn't speak in terms of orientation, and interestingly, uh, we're actually moving to a place, I think, where uh, even the culture is struggling with the idea of fixed sexual orientation. Um, Rosaria Butterfield uh, writes that uh, the category orientation is falling out of popularity as the cultural expectations for sexual orientation drop, meaning this, as as, as the panoply, as the plethora of sexual options becomes more acceptable in the society, the need for you to identify in one particular sexual orientation or pattern is falling apart. And that's not coming from religious conservatives. That's coming from people in the gender fluidity movement, in the androgyny movement, in the queer movement. Um, So, yes, the Bible doesn't speak in terms of orientation, but I don't even know if we should be speaking in terms of orientation, to be honest. But the Bible does speak in terms of identity. Let me take a minute to read a couple passages from Scripture that talk about identity. Um, Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. and the life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The invitation to the gospel is not the invitation to your identity plus, your life plus Jesus. The invitation of the gospel is to come and lose your life that you might find it. And I'm so tired of us modifying our identity as Christians. It's a binary choice. You're in Christ or you're not. And if you're in Christ, you're my brother, you're my sister, and we need to walk arm in arm in this beautiful new community that God is putting together by his Holy Spirit. It's really powerful. So we're not rich and poor. We're not black and white. We're not, not that these things don't matter. Not that economics don't matter. Not that race doesn't matter. Not that background and culture don't matter. But, but, but what matters most is Christ. And so I guess I want to invite you, if you're struggling with same-sex attraction or gender identity questions or, or whatever, you've, wherever you're finding your identity outside of Christ, I want to invite you to an unmodified identity. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. My identity is in the cross and in the risen Jesus. And so the fourth question I get most often is, why can't we just live and let live? Does this issue really matter? Is it so important? The entire story of the Bible is the story of things that are unlike coming together. I just talked about how we all come from different places, economically and culturally and racially, and, and we, we come from different places and we become one in Christ. Paul calls this the mystery or the sacrament of the faith, that we have a union and a communion with one another. But when Paul talks about the mystery and the sacrament of faith, he also talks about the union of God and mankind. You see, the Bible begins with heaven and earth being separated this is, I think, Meredith Klein talks about this. The Bible begins with heaven and earth being separated, and the rest of the story is about when they finally come together and God's glorious presence eclipses the need for the sun, and we stand before him unashamed in the, in the light of his glory. So the whole Bible story is about the things that are unlike coming together. It's what Paul calls the mystery of faith. It's a holy and loving and just and righteous God coming together with a selfish and broken and sinful humanity. And when Paul talks about this mystery of faith, he talks about sexuality. In Ephesians 5, he says that the husband and wife are naked and unashamed. He quotes Genesis 2. He says they become one flesh. And this mystery, this sacrament is profound, and I'm speaking of Christ in the church. There are other issues about the authority of Scripture in our lives and the sufficiency of Scripture and what we believe about the Bible and how we read the Bible. All of these other things come into play about why this issue matters, but if I could just tell you one thing, it's that sexuality is supposed to be gospel preaching. And homosexuality preaches a different gospel It preaches the worship of the thing that is like me rather than the worship of the thing that is unlike me, the giving of worth to the thing that is unlike me. And the gospel story is that God unites himself to one that is unlike him. And that's why Paul says the one flesh union is the mystery of our faith. So what does faithfulness look like for the LGBT Christian, the same-sex attracted Christian? I think it looks like one of... One of two things. Well, b- b- first, faithfulness for the LGBT or same-sex attracted Christian, and I like the phrase same-sex attracted because it's less heavy with identity language. Um, the same-sex attracted Christian's faithfulness is finding our identity in Christ, and then either deep friendship and service in the kingdom of God in singleness or fidelity and service in the kingdom of God in marriage. And both are valuable and viable and plausible life patterns for people. Um, Sam Albury... Ed Shaw, and to a, uh, a slightly lesser degree, but I think still accurately, Wes Hill, are three authors listed on the back of your handout that talk about what it looks like to live faithfully in an Orthodox Christian biblical sexual ethic as homosexual Christians who are who are living in singleness. You're going to hear from some people tonight who... Uh, and it just so happens that this is the way it shook out tonight. I wish we could have someone who's living in singleness here with us too, to, to feed back to you. Um, but you you're going to hear from a few folks tonight who are living in marriage uh, in the midst of experience of same-sex attraction. But we as the church need to hold up identity in Christ, not identity in your spouse, not identity in your sexual orientation, not identity in your job, but identity in Christ as the ideal and the goal, and we all need to live faithfully in that. And so the last question that I get most frequently, how do I engage a world uh, who dis- people in the world who disagree with me? How do I engage people who struggle with same-sex attraction? How do I engage LGBT friends and neighbors? Um, on your handout, I-, I just broke it into a couple categories. I think the Bible gives us some good principles. For people who disagree with us, the Bible tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The Bible tells Israel when they were in captivity uh, to be a blessing to their captors. Uh, Jeremiah says, uh, "Bless <laughs> Settle down, buy homes, bless the city, even though they took you captive and raped and pillaged and to, you know So, so if, if, if Jeremiah can say that, if God can say that through Jeremiah to them, I mean, we need to be a blessing to our neighbors, even if they don't agree with us. Um, Peter gives a good model. For this, a good attitude with gentleness and respect. Know what you believe, give an answer for it. Um, You don't need everyone around you to know why they're wrong. What you need to do is faithfully represent Christ through a gentle, humble spirit uh, if you are a believer. How do we engage LGBT people outside the church? I think the principle of the neighbor or the sojourner is appropriate here. Uh, Israel, anytime an alien, a sojourner, came into the camp, they were to welcome them and show hospitality to them because we Christians are supposed to know what it's like to be sojourners. We wandered, right? We wandered in the desert for 40 years and we wandered in darkness waiting for the light of Christ to be revealed. And, and, and so we know what it's like to be outcast and so we need to welcome the person who is unlike us into our camp and, and we feed them and we show hospitality to them and we love our neighbor as ourselves. But what about within our circles? Uh, the brother or sister who is struggling with same-sex attraction, they experience it, they don't want to act on it, they are convicted by the Bible's teaching on this matter. Um, I think if we can get past the cultural... And I think I think if you're under 40 years old today, it's easier to get past the, the kind of cultural um, yuck factor over this. But... But we need to walk with our brothers and sisters, whatever sin pattern or habit that they're struggling with. Um, we don't need to, like, I don't need more pity from you, and I don't need you to be disgusted by me. I need us to walk together. I mean, that's um, the pattern there. And, and, and I think it's important to remember, one, one of the prohibitive texts, 1 Corinthians 6, says, here's all the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, swindlers and revilers and greedy and Donald Trump and... and uh, no, no. Um, <laughs> swindler, reviler I'm not supposed to do that, right? (laughs) Thanks. Homosexual offenders and the sexually immoral, right? And it says and so you're reading that list, right? And and anyone who's honest with themselves is like, holy crap, I'm in this list. And then there's this like beautiful gospel moment, right? Because this is what the gospel does. It's like, no! And then it's like, yes! Because the gospel the gospel comes in and it says but such were some of you. Right. if you friend or neighbor or if you are struggling with same-sex attraction or whatever you're struggling with you need to remember that your identity is in Christ so such were some of you that's not who you are you might struggle with it, you might do it but that's not who you are who you are is washed and justified meaning made right and sanctified meaning made holy that's who you are and so that's what we need to affirm in each other Uh, And then finally, um, and I I hope we talk more about this, but briefly, how do we walk next to people who identify as Christian, but also um, openly identify as LGBT or are LGBT identity and activity affirming? if you want to read something from this perspective, I don't want to. I don't want to hide and be ashamed. Uh, and I think that the the arguments from the other side are more persuasive. But if you want to read about this perspective, some of the popular authors include Matthew Vines, uh, James Brownson, and uh, Justin Lee. Um, they are uh, compelling in their appeals. I think that they are misguided in their understanding of Scripture. Um, But I think we need to uh, take in mind what the Bible tells us about interacting with people who are in error. And so first, Paul gives kind of this blanket statement to the leaders in the church in Thessalonica. He says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is like my pastoral philosophy verse. I don't know where you are, but if I'm walking next to you, God gives me a a way to, to walk with you. Um... But Matthew 7, which tells us to remove the speck from our own eye before we confront our brother with his sin, does two things. First, it causes us to be humble right? Examine ourselves and see where we're sinning. But then two, also requires us to then go and remove the speck from our brother's eye after we've taken the log out of ours. How that works uh, depends on relationship and context. And I think that's a place where we need to be better connected as a church body um, and with our church leaders and pastors to help us do those sorts of things so we can untangle more of that later. Thanks for listening. Um, I hope that uh, I've at least exposed you to uh, a biblical worldview